Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Find Your Model Health, the official podcast for those looking to optimize their long-term health goals and understand how their body really works. I'm excited to have another special guest on today. But before we get into um, this chat that we have lined up, I want to remind you that the information in these podcast episodes is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. Please consult your health practitioner before making any lifestyle changes. So today we are joined with Dr. Rebecca Ray. At last, we were supposed to do this last week, but my fault, I got the times confused. So Rebecca, I'm hoping you'll tell us a bit about your story, but Rebecca, you were a pilot turned clinical psychologist. That's a strange change of careers. You're also an author, speaker, and a student of life, aren't we all? And you help women um, understand the truth about who they are, why they maybe aren't showing up for themselves or they're struggling um, and help them live a life that's fulfilling. And I like this unapologetic and free because a lot of the time women do want to apologize for all of their actions. I'm sorry, I'm late. I'm sorry I didn't respond all that. So Rebecca, actually, before we go on, you have an awesome website full of amazing articles to really help women understand why they should show up for themselves. So you guys want to check that out. That's RebeccaRay.com. And I'll put the links in the description once we're finished. But also, she has a really good podcast called Hello, Rebecca Ray. And there's lots and lots of tips in there that I took away. So, Rebecca, it's nice to speak to you. Um, it's nice to speak to you, too. Can you tell me a little bit, why did you go from a pilot to a psychologist? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I just want to clarify my website is rebeccaray.com.au. <clears throat> um, a little uh, extra suffix at the end. Um, I... I was studying psychology, so I started studying psychology straight out of school and um, I was a very fragile teenager. So I started university in the year that I turned 18 mm. and I felt the need to do something uh, big with my life that would somehow prove that I was good enough. I don't really know who I was trying to prove something to, Um but my grandfather, who was my best friend, he's no longer with us, um, he was just a gem of a man and he had his private pilot's licence and he had um, his own plane and he used to take myself and my cousins flying when we were little and I loved it. And he said to me, you know, if you can drive a car, you can fly a plane. <clears throat> now, what I didn't know at the time is that's a lie. Um, it, that might've been true for Ronnie, but it was not true for me. So I decided that if it was really that easy, I would go and get my private pilot's license. Now, not being one to do things by halves, I got my private pilot's license, but still felt incredibly anxious about the whole thing. So I'm someone who's really comfortable with routine. I'm really comfortable with doing the same going to the same office each day to do relatively the same things. What my um, creativity happens in my head. It doesn't necessarily happen around me. 
Whereas with flying, things change every single day. And that made me really anxious. Um, so I thought, well, the answer to the anxiety must be to just do more. Um, so I got my commercial pilot's license. Then I got my night riding, sorry, my night flying rating. And then I got a multi-engine rating. And then I got an instructor rating. And then I won a scholarship to do more flying training. And honestly, at that point, I just had to admit that doing more of it was not going to make it fit my personality better. Um, it was just the wrong fit for me. I could do it. I never failed a flight test, but it was clearly um, not meant to be for me. And I just had to face that wanting to vomit on the way to the airport every day was probably not the best foundation for a career, you know? And yeah. so I went back to psychology and um, I uh, did my professional doctorate and then I was in private practice for a long time where I specialised in treating um, post-traumatic stress disorder in police and other emergency services personnel and with military personnel, both current serving and retired. So, um, and obviously depression and anxiety and everything in between, but um, yeah. I primarily treated trauma and then I ended up getting burnt out about 35 years prior to my planning. So I thought I was going to be in private practice until I was like 70. I thought I was going to do it for the rest of my life. And mm. I woke up one day, actually, I didn't wake up one day. It was like over the course of about five years. I, I tried so hard in so many different ways to practice differently so that I didn't feel so burnt out. And I just left it too late for too long. And I got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore. And, um, so I had to walk away from something I loved so deeply and think, how on earth am I going to use eight years of training and so many years of clinical practice? How am I going to use, how am I going to practice psychology to do something that I still love, but in a way that doesn't burn me out? And so I was kind of left with creating my life all over again. And um, that's how I ended up online. I thought, well, maybe I could take what I've learned and how I live and my general philosophies and put it out to a broader audience. And um, as someone who didn't even have a Facebook profile, it was like incredibly overwhelming. I just, I still don't love the online world. It's not, I'm not a fan, but it's a way to connect with my people. So um, I put up with it for that engagement. It's and a love-hate relationship. I is, have it as well. It's like, I don't want yes. to be on my phone, but this is how we <laughs> communicate. Exactly. But it's, it's brought me so much good things um, as long as it's managed well. Right. So um, yeah, here I am now I write books and sell courses online and work with people um, in group format. And I don't really feel like I have a job. I love it so much that I don't, it doesn't feel like work. Are you doing one-to-one -one now as well? No, I don't do any one-to-one. -one. Um, I, I have a mastermind with uh, other entrepreneurial women who I work with on a seven month basis. So it's a very small, intimate program. And um, I spend seven months at a time with those women um, working on their businesses and working on what is ultimately, you know, alignment. I, I really think the basis of everything that we do in that program is actually helping you to align more strongly with the life that you want to create and the business that you want to create to be able to offer the world what you've got. 
so you weren't aligned with the flying obviously so that that's kind of you found your own alignment through through what you're doing now I suppose so it was a jagged exactly. line and now it's a bit more straight yeah do you think yeah. that just while you were speaking do you think that the whole flying pilot it was because it was so unpredictable some of us like to be in control a lot yeah. as much as we can and when we're not in control we get that anxiety but do you think because flying is very unpredictable you don't know what's coming next yeah it's I mean you train for the unpredictability of it but that just didn't fit my personality so it turns out that I have uh, non-negotiables, a non-negotiable need in my life to mm. be able to generally do similar things on a daily basis in my work life. So what happens is it might look like I'm doing the same thing each day. I go to my office in my house and I sit at my computer. It might all look the same, but what I actually do on a daily basis changes. Um, but it's completely within my wheelhouse. So I'm someone who prefers words on a page um, rather than maths in the air. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just, I got better. At, and I, I think my entire life is, is one of this. It, it's just getting to know myself better. And as I get to know myself better, I make small tweaks, which means that I live more closely to not only who I, who I want to be, but who I'm becoming. Mm, yeah. I, 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 it's cliche as it sounds, I align with what you're saying. I'm still yeah. discovering myself and finding my way. And I, I'm open with my clients as well about my struggles. Um, but you, like I'd mentioned to you, you do a lot of work in helping women understand themselves, really. And I really wanted to chat to you because I have some women and yeah, the last few years have been a struggle for all of us. Some of us bounced back better than others. Some of us recovered. Some, it affected their lives with a ripple effect and they're still mm. struggling. So then I see, and it breaks my heart because I want to help people as much as I can, that they're, they've stopped showing up for themselves or they've kind of given up what I know they don't want to, but they have. And this is an area that you speak about because I came across that amazing article you did and I've shared it. Um, that was the one on so why we stop showing or we choose to stop showing up for ourselves. So mm. can you give us, go into a bit more detail on that? Why, why do women stop showing up for themselves? Why do they kind of just give up and accept what is, is, is their truth? Like this is just how it is. Yeah. Um, interesting title that I put on that article. I wrote that a few years ago. I probably wouldn't use the term choose now. I don't think anyone chooses to stop, stop showing up for themselves. I yeah. actually think what happens is we are so conditioned to give beyond the point of our giving tanks. So you know, once our resources are empty, we are still so conditioned to keep going and to um, make sure everyone else's needs are met and to be busy and to be productive rather than looking after ourselves and take the time to rest that 
I think what happens is we become so depleted and then feel like we don't have a choice in the matter. Um, We have so little left to give and we put ourselves last. So I don't think it's a choice to stop showing up for ourselves. I think what happens is we fall into a cycle of giving everyone else um, and everything else the resources in our giving tanks. And then because we put ourselves last, last, there's nothing left over for us at the end of the day. And we often don't have the energy either because showing up for yourself takes energy, right? It takes energy to be able to say, actually, I want to do this particular habit differently or I want to um, cultivate something that's self-supporting rather than something that's self-sabotaging. So I don't think it's a choice. I think it's an insidious cycle that we fall into that then becomes habitual. We become uh, last on our list and it's very difficult to then be able to uh, frame a world where we could potentially uh, be prioritised on that list. I'm not going to say come first because I don't necessarily believe that either. I think life is so incredibly dynamic that it's not as simple as saying put yourself first because sometimes that's impossible. I have a four-year-old. I can't always put myself first, right? He yeah. he has needs that often come before mine. Yeah. But uh, I think it's important to think of it in terms of you're a priority too. You might be an equal priority. You might not necessarily come first all the time. Um, so let's not r- make it reductive like that. But I do think it's a case of how can we create a perspective where our needs are also priority? Do you think there is a trigger there? Do you see triggers where a woman may be showing up for herself for so long and doing amazing and then something happens and whatever it is, it's obviously draining her and she's putting herself last, but have you noticed specific triggers, relationship issues, whatever that might start this? Yeah, so often there can be a... It might not be something as uh, succinct, like maybe it's not something like uh, I had a fight with my partner. Maybe it's something like um, the pandemic, you know. So it can be something that's uh, a long-term kind of uh, experience that was considered traumatic um, or took more of you than you had to give. But it can also be season of life or it can also be a distinct event. So um, it could be a distinct, a distinct event as in um, divorce. Let's say that your partner comes home. This happened to a friend of mine a couple of years ago. Her partner of 20 years came home in January and said, I can't do this anymore. Um, I'm leaving. And uh, it was completely out of the blue for her and her life was turned upside down. Now, that's a distinct event that you then need to yeah. recover from. But you could also have something like you're caring for your aging parents and they're not well and that goes on for years and years and years, um, season of life. Or you could have a small person in your world, you have a baby and then that demands more of you for a period of time. Um, Or the world changes, you lose your job or you change jobs and um, perhaps you move cities, those types of things. And those things demand more of us at the time. So one of the things that can happen is our life changes. However, 
the change occurs. And for that period of time, we have to give more of ourselves to the change, to processing the change, to adjusting to the change. And um, during that time, our habits can go out the window. So you might have been, um, I experienced this actually, I spent the vast majority of my adult life single until I met my wife. And I would get up at like 4.45 in the morning, walk my dog for an hour. I'd be at work by 7am and I'd get home from work at 7pm and sleep and do it all again the next day. Now, probably not the healthiest lifestyle. It was very healthy physically, um, but I didn't have to maintain a relationship. Nothing else was kind of needed from me. I looked after my dog. It was just us two. And then I met Nissa, and she was like, I kind of need to talk to you at the end of the day. And I was like, shit, now someone wants to talk to me after I've talked for 10 hours in the day. So um, the change in having someone else in my world and having someone else have needs disrupted my habits for quite some time while I found a new version of me. And I think women can um, automatically go, okay, what's needed from me outwardly? And then forget that we need to circle back to consider what our own needs are and our needs change as our life changes as well. So what you needed in your 20s might be different to what you need in your 30s, which is again different to what you need in your 40s and 50s. So it's the whole thing's dynamic. And I think um, society as a whole, particularly Western society, can almost uh, make us think that, oh, my goodness, we need to be able to... um, decide on our habits and just stick to them, you know, like once you've got them in place, then you just stick to them and then it's fine. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really account for the fact that life changes. Yeah. It, it's definitely an easier said than done. Thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I deal with my clients all the time, but I will add in the disclaimer. I know this is easier said than done. All we can do is try our best. But I work with a lot of people that have different health conditions. um, And for sure, one thing that I see when a new relationship does happen, of course, when relationships are having issues, I can see the ripple effect there. But when people have a new relationship, I get it. I, I get the excitement, the butterflies, the love. I get all of it, especially if someone has been lonely or whatever. But you start to see, of course, they're putting the relationship on the front burner, but they're yeah. putting their needs on the back burner. And a lot of the time, yeah. because I'm working with people that have health issues, the back burner has its own ripple effects that I, yeah. I and how, how am I, I try to say it nicely, like, I know you're in love, it's great and all, but remember your health kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And if we don't remember our health, I think it's what you're pointing to here is the flow on effects that um, if your physical health declines, then your mental health will decline too. Those two things go hand in hand. And I think one of the things that can show up um, and sorry, one of the things that can stop women from showing up for themselves is guilt. So we end up in a pattern where we're giving to everyone else and it feels really comfortable or we're celebrating something new and great, like a new baby or a new relationship or a new job. And the changes in that mean that we we somehow unconsciously decide that um, 
there's no space for us. You know, there's no space for us to just go and look after ourselves. And I think that's a, an entire place on its own that we need to arrive at to be able to understand, have that deep understanding that you are not less important than your relationship, your partner, your child, your pets, um, your work. I often say to myself, I have a tendency to overwork. It's just how I'm wired. Um, yeah. And I have a, a almost like a mantra that I say to myself where I will sit down and think, oh, I don't have time to go for a walk today. And my mantra is I'm not less important than the work because my work is incredibly meaningful. And I get messages almost on a daily basis from people saying, oh my God, I read your book and it changed my life. I don't take those things lightly. It, everything I do, I pour myself into it um, because it matters. It's, yeah. you know, my work is out in the world doing something good. But if I'm not around and healthy to, to create the work, there will be no work. So my mantra is I am not less important than the work. Yeah, well, I mine is a bit more cliche. It's like you can't pour from an empty cup. I'm yeah, constantly it's the same thing, Yeah, yeah, it is. I can't constantly say to my clients, are you doing your self-care? Are you taking some time to yourself? Then when I say, oh, by the way, I'm going to be offline for the weekend, they'll come back at me and say, yes, man, you have to take care of yourself too. So we have a good thing. But what you said is um, getting to this place where we're not feeling guilty is kind of a place of acceptance. Like it's mm -hmm. okay to take a phone call with your friend and just put your kid in front of the TV for an hour. If that phone call is good for you, like, mm -hmm. but women's, for example, I had a phone call with a client yesterday who I really want to help because she was struggling and her toddler was like in the background and I could feel it in her voice. She was getting tense. And I was saying, please don't stress. I'm the last person you should mm. stress with. I have kids too. It's okay. Tend mm. to her or whatever. But even after the call, she messaged me to say, I just felt guilty. Like I was neglecting my daughter. And in a nice way, I was trying to say, I understand that. But when we do feel guilt, we sometimes we're giving ourselves unnecessary anguish. Like she's going to be okay playing with her toys for an hour or whatever. But mm. it was women I think we all will agree we are hard on ourselves for sure. Yeah. And I don't know that we can get rid of the guilt. I do think that uh, that word acceptance is incredibly important because sometimes the part of the accept acceptance that we need to have is accepting that guilt might be present, accepting mm -hmm. that um, when you're working, you feel like you should be tending to your child. And when you're tending to your child, you feel like you should be working. Um, yeah. And when you're uh, mowing the lawn, you feel like you should be looking after your body. And when you're looking after your body, you feel like you should be doing the housework, you know, like there's, mm -hmm. there's always somewhere else for us to be something else uh, being demanded of us. And so I think uh, initially when we're unlearning this guilt, rather than trying to get rid of the guilt or not feel guilty, which is likely to actually exacerbate the guilt. You know, if you put that pressure on yourself to not feel it, you're likely to feel it more intensively. So instead, what I would say to listeners is accept that the guilt might show up, but you can still choose to act in line with your values. You can still choose that in that moment, you're going to go for a swim or you're going to 
um, sit in a bath or you're going to do the thing that's going to help meet your needs in that moment, even if it feels uncomfortable. Because one of the things that helps brains actually change to develop new self-supporting habits is when we take action over and over again that's consistent with our values to then give our brains evidence that we can actually do those things. So what's likely to happen is you need to take action even with the guilt present before your brain catches up to go, oh, okay, it's actually all right for us to do these things. So then the more you do that, the more consistent you are with the habits and then the guilt factor lowers and lowers and lowers over time. That's, Yes. that's a good way to look at it that is a good way to consider so it is kind of although except you might have guilt but do what you know is right for you you will have guilt but if we keep doing what is aligned with you using your words the guilt will lessen over time yes Yep. Your brain develops evidence, but the only way your brain develops evidence is by you taking action. Mm -hmm. Um, It also works the reverse by you taking self-sabotaging action. The more self-sabotaging action you take, the more that becomes a habit too. But as you're changing, um, sorry, as you're changing the habits to be able to be aligned with who you want to be, the more you actually take those baby steps of action towards looking after yourself or showing up for yourself, the more your brain is actually going to give you a stronger dopamine hit. So this is the thing that we don't talk about enough. Mm. Um, We often talk about how, you know, there's this short-term relief of lying on the couch and binging another episode on Netflix, right? Um, That feels better than putting on your shoes and getting out the door and going for a walk. Mm. However, if you actually put on your shoes and go for a walk, the hit of dopamine, which is the feel-good neurochemical in our brain responsible for giving us a sense of pleasure and reward and motivation, actually is stronger than anything you'll get um, from short-term relief. So the more you actually take these steps, not only is the guilt going to diminish, but you're also going to be feeling even better about yourself because there's nothing that feels better than aligning with your values. So that will encourage more consistency then. And exactly. Does that mean, though, that the more you self-sabotage, the higher the guilt factor, it, it keeps compounding as well? Yeah. So what can happen with the guilt around self-sabotage is not so much the guilt of, you know, I feel like I should be looking after my child instead of getting up and going for a swim in the morning. Um, It's more the guilt of I'm not being who I want to be. So Um, uh, I talk about this in my book on setting boundaries. We have boundaries with ourselves. So we often talk about boundaries between um, us and another person. That's generally when people converse about boundaries, they're talking about external boundaries between you and I, right? Mm -hmm. Um, However, we have internal boundaries as well between me and me, between you and you. So I have boundaries around um, how often I move my body, what I put into my body. Um, I have boundaries around screen time. I have boundaries around what time I need to go to bed for my energy to be um, available the next day. Now, when I violate my boundaries, and I'll be the first to admit that it's easier for me to violate my own boundaries than it is for me to violate my boundaries between me and another person, right? I will feel guilty because it's out of alignment, but no one's coming. 
So no one's going to, I'm an adult, right? I'm now in my forties. No one is going, I'm not going to get in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> I am my own boss at work. So unless I perhaps don't, I miss a deadline with my publisher or something, that would be the only time I might get in trouble, but I'm not getting in trouble from anyone. No one is going to say to me, my wife is not going to say to me, you should get up earlier in the morning you slept in today. Um, and so what happens is the guilt that I feel is actually in my relationship with myself. Now, sometimes this can be where we, um, <laughs> this, I'll use this terminology for myself, but not necessarily for listeners. I'm a great tantrum thrower, right? So sometimes when in the times in my life where I've given up on myself, it's been the times where I've gone, well, I've gone too far now, so bugger it. I'm not even going to try. It's just yeah. easier now. I'll eat whatever I want for months at a time. I'll drink no water. I'll lie on the couch because it's all too hard and I've gone too far. It's essentially my adult version of throwing a tantrum. Now, yeah. the only person that gets affected by this is me. It compounds my relationship with myself, turns it negative, and it means that I'm misaligned with who I actually want to be. Mm. I mean, it does eventually affect my wife and my child, especially if I get to the point where I don't have energy to spend with them. But initially, I want you to focus on your relationship with you. So if guilt is showing up, then I want you to have a look at your internal boundaries. Have you set boundaries uh, around things that you would really love to be doing because you see an ideal day for yourself and it includes um, a couple of glasses of water. It includes going outside into nature for a bit. It includes not spending all your time with your phone in your face. And yet you're doing the opposite of that. If you're doing the opposite of those things that you really want to do, you might be violating your internal boundaries. And that's when it comes to being really honest with ourselves. But this is where we get to a really important part of showing up for ourselves. Because if you then come at yourself from a place of self-criticism and condemnation, you're going to end up in a hole. Mm. So if you are an Olympic level tantrum thrower like I am and you're fantastic at making life harder for yourself rather than easier, I get it, I see you, I've been there a million times. Um, one of the things I want you to really understand though is it probably feels like you need to get the whip out and you need to criticise yourself and you talk badly to yourself and you remind yourself of all the things that you're doing wrong um, and all the ways that you're not good enough. But I promise you, despite the fact that that might seem like what you need to do to kind of whip yourself into shape, it's actually the thing that will compound your feelings of unworthiness even more. So, so is instead, that, I'm sorry, sorry. To off. Is, that, is that also asking, just so I understand this, is that also part of the reflection, self-reflection and asking yourself, why, why am I? doing what's not aligned with me it's the way you ask that question okay. so instead of um because reflection is always great it can be so helpful to understand why we're doing something what what type of meat no, sorry what type of need we're trying to meet yeah um, because human beings are always trying to meet a need right we are great at being able to identify our discomfort and to get rid of that discomfort it's the way we go about doing that can that can either harm us or help us now, 
it's the way you also ask the question of why. If you ask the question of why are you such a loser, like here you are doing this again, like I cannot believe you. Um, you said that on Monday you would start this again and you would get back on track and look at you. Here you are just lying on the couch. You are just so incredibly lazy. Why? Why do you do this? Now, mm. if you ask it from that tone, then mm. all you're doing is punishing yourself, shaming yourself, and no change, not at least no sustainable change happens from a place of shame. So instead, the way I want you to ask that question, the way I want you to hold yourself when you're in a place of self-sabotage um, or not showing up for yourself is from a place of self-compassion. So it sounds very different. It would sound something like this. I see that right now you're trying to do the best that you can with what you have and you don't have very much. You don't feel like you've got the energy. You don't feel like you've got um, to be able to lift yourself out of this hole that you feel like you're in. I see it. It's a, You're having a really hard time. And I'm really proud of you for surviving everything that you have for as long as you have. And also, I relentlessly believe in your potential to shift ever so slightly every day towards who you're becoming. So there's this gentleness to it. It doesn't mean that you cop out. It doesn't mean that you look in the mirror and go, ah, it doesn't matter. Like, you're fine. It doesn't matter. Like, you can just watch a whole nother I don't know, a whole other season of that show and you'll start, I don't know, in 2023, then you'll deal with it. Um, it do, it's not copping out. There's a very big difference between self-compassion and copping out because sometimes with self-compassion, we also have to get radically honest with ourselves, which is to say, this is not working for me. It's not who I want to be. But if you do that from a place of understanding and compassion and validation for yourself, you're much more likely to shift in the direction that you want to go than if you come at yourself from a place of criticism and shame. I think those are powerful words, establishing or pondering on who you want to be who do you want to be because I I said at the start when I was given an example of my clients and you you uh, reiterated it really is that when I see clients self-sabotage or go off track or whatever and they'll say they're off track but I know they don't want to be they don't yeah. want to be but they're worn out I use that saying a lot we get worn down it's just wear and tear the days get at us and um you're right like sometimes stay taking a step back and just implementing small habits one at a time and being a bit kinder to yourself like I, I've said a few times this week to a few people one push-up is better than no push-ups it might only yeah. be one but it's still better than none absolutely um, one glass of water is better than none like the, and this is sometimes for perfectionists really hard, right? Because mm. perfectionists can go, no, I committed to doing 30 push-ups, um, 50 sit-ups, uh, walking four kilometres, drinking four litres of water, um, and also overhauling my diet at the same time. And I got to Tuesday and I got off track. So what's the point? Yeah, it's all or nothing. I, yeah. I have some clients like that. Well, I had one cookie. I might as well have the whole package. Exactly. One probably wouldn't have done that much damage, yeah. but the whole pack does the yeah. damage. So does yeah. this tie into then your, 
I'm going to give it to you, your idea of self-abandonment, because I'd never, and I know my clients, we had never heard of that terminology before coming across your articles. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So self-abandonment is essentially walking out on yourself when um, actually what you really needed was to stay and feel your feelings. Self-abandonment is when we numb out. It's when we ignore our intuition. It's where we ignore our own needs. Um, It's when we meet our needs in a way that actually sabotages who we want to be. might feel good in the short term, but it's shifting us further away from where we want to be in the long term. So anytime um, you do something other than the thing you need to do or want to do, you're walking out on yourself. Um, And most often I see that by people refusing to sit with their feelings and feel their feelings. They'll do anything but um, go in the opposite direction of those feelings. And usually it's about trying to make the feelings more pleasant, trying to make the feelings more tolerable. Um, And so they medicate or they um, do anything that they can to turn the feelings off or make the feelings different. Being able to be present with yourself is uh, I think it's a very underrated skill, but being able to be present with yourself is the first, uh, sorry, the first step of coming back to yourself. Do you think that is a place of where people are walking out on themselves or running away from their feelings? They don't want to face them. Is that from a place of, I think maybe two things, one fear they're afraid to face it because it makes us uncomfortable but the second sometimes I think people are maybe fed up they're like I'm sick of facing this all the time I just wanted to stop let's just go the other way because I'm fed up with this yeah absolutely it can be um it can be fear it can be uh feeling fed up especially if you feel like the feelings have gone on for too long um so sometimes we can decide that you know Apparently this is supposed to pass and it hasn't passed in this amount of time and therefore I'm over it. So I'm just going to mask it or I'm just going to do something to hide those feelings. Um, And let me just clarify, we all numb to a certain extent. Small amounts of um, refusing to sit with your feelings are not necessarily a big thing. It's when refusing to your, sorry, refusing to feel your feelings becomes your lifestyle um, Mm. that it becomes problematic. The other thing that can happen is a lack of self-trust. We often don't sit with our feelings because we don't trust ourselves to be able to manage feelings that feel very uncomfortable or very big. Um, And so instead, because we don't trust ourselves to be able to cope, we do everything but. Do you think if someone is in a place of I'm just fed up, this was supposed to be better by now, it hasn't got better, I'm over it, I'm walking the other way. What are the negatives of that? What could potentially happen? Like, are these feelings going to fester inside you? Like, where's the problem with getting to that stage where it's not necessarily fear, it's just I'm fed up? So the problem, look, the problem is not, there's not a problem if this happens on a day. You have a bad day. Even if you have a bad bad week, you're probably going to have a problem, right? Everyone has this. It's, there's a big difference between a bad day or a bad week and a bad year. What happens is when this pattern of being fed up 
uh, results in uh, habits or behaviors that are directly against who you want to be for a long period of time. Because then what happens is you're cultivating a way of being that you don't recognize until one day you look in the mirror and you realize that you're in a job that you hate and you've been there for 10 years and you said after the first year that you were going to leave or you're still in a relationship that's not uh, where your partner doesn't treat you in a way that's respectful and you said you were going to leave last year and you're still here 12 months later or you're doing the habits that were just a one-off thing and now um, they've become your way of being which means you're permanently dehydrated, you're permanently living on um, perhaps a diet that's not giving you the energy that you want to um, move through the day with and you're not moving your body. Now, when you're fed up and you act in that way, the response becomes a pattern. So if we're not just talking about um, the odd day here or there where you're having a tantrum and the tantrum becomes a prolonged way of being, the pr- that's where the problem occurs because you'll start, your brain starts to get wired to go, okay, this is what we do. This is who we are. And it becomes your identity. And now we know that that's not necessarily your identity. It's not who you want to be, but because it's what you do on a daily basis, it's what you see in the mirror. And this is how self-trust becomes eroded. And then eventually in time, you're looking in the mirror and saying, how did I get here? Or what happened? Like, how how did this all happen? Like, you don't recognize yourself almost. And dare I say, time is our most valuable commodity. And you look back at the last 10 years of your life and say, oh, my God, I've wasted them. That's right. That's right. How did I get here? I've look at all this time that I wanted to spend differently and I didn't spend it differently. Now, in that place, I was just saying, and that's sad. That's heartache. Yeah. And when you're in that place, the worst thing you can do is then shame yourself for being there. So instead, I want you to understand that we human beings don't do things for no reason. When life gets hard, you've got coping strategies. We've all got coping strategies. And those strategies help you get through times where otherwise you might not have coped so well. You did the best that you could at the time with what you had. Now, it's very easy to look back with hindsight, as they say, hindsight is twenty twenty, and go, well, I should have done that differently. And if I just chose to, you know, perhaps not mask my feelings with food and instead go for a walk, then I wouldn't necessarily be in a place right now where I feel like I need to overhaul my diet. Yeah, well, that's very easy to say from the place that you're sitting right now. Instead, where change is born is by understanding that you did that for a reason. Mm. It was hard. Like life gets so incredibly hard. And sometimes all we can do is do whatever we can to get through it. Now, ultimately, When you're making decisions about how you want to move forward, I want you to make decisions based on who you want to be and the life that you want to live, not from a place of how you should look in the mirror or what society says you should do to be attractive or what some magazine says you should do to be the right size. All of that is absolute bullshit. Instead, I want you to think about if you get one chance on this earth, 
um, what are you going to do with it? Because it's not my decision to tell you how to do your life. It's not your decision to tell your clients how to do their life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's their decision to go, this is the life I want to live. I want to live with vitality or I want to live with energy or I want to have enough energy to be able to get down with my child and play on the floor and be able to stand up so that it doesn't hurt. Um, those things are your client's decisions. When you connect with your values like that, it means that you get to decide that you're in control about how you use this one chance at life that we get, that we know of, Um, rather than giving that choice away to either society or the culture that we live in that says that you must be a certain way um, and instead come back to am I actually being someone that I can look back on from my 80th birthday if we're lucky enough to get there and say, you know what, I lived a life that is consistent with who I wanted to be. Mm. So it, it it's deciding who you want to be and then you get to decide who you're going to choose to travel that road with you and who's going to help you. You're going to help yeah. or I'm going to help. So the, it's yeah. all, the onus is on the person, of course. Absolutely. Um, with all the considerations taken in and as you said the 80 year olds I've never thought of myself at 80 but I kind of think I would be like you know most of the time I was a rock star (laughs) yeah and you want to be able to say that if that's what your 80 year old self wants to say then that's your responsibility to live now in a way that would make your future self proud I think it's also understanding It's also understanding that your past self did what she did for a reason. If you look back and go, oh, you know, I wasted all that time because, you know, I was off track. Instead, I want you to come at it from a place of self-compassion. You coped, you survived, um, and you learned the lessons along the way. Yeah, I did what I had to do for my kids or these were the choices I had to make to keep a roof over our head or whatever. Yeah, that understanding. So I did want to talk about self-care and self-love, but I think you've already touched a lot on that. So I was hoping that because of the time of the year and people, of course, and as much as we say we're not going to set New Year's resolutions, people say it every year they still somewhere in their head have ideals of what they would like to accomplish in the next year. A big aspect of that is readiness. And you speak about readiness. And I love what you have to say, because I agree totally with it. Like, you're never going to be ready. It's now or never kind of thing. Can you talk a bit on readiness and how it holds us back from taking action to being who we want to be? Yeah, so readiness is very much um, a myth and it's perpetuated by our culture that's driven by the calendar. So we decide that, well, we'll start on Monday or we'll start on the 1st of the month or we'll especially start on the 1st of January. And one of the things that that sets us up for is um, the, the myth that if we wait until that day and we jump out of the gate with, you know, these changes that we want to make, that all of a sudden will overwhelm the fear systems in our brain and collapse by day three, Um, which then means that we make decisions about ourselves like we've failed and like we can't possibly change because we didn't get it right. But the thing is 
A, if you wait for a particular date, then you may end up putting so much pressure on yourself that your brain can't tolerate that level of pressure. And so automatically kind of falls apart in the process of trying to make the change. Mm. And the other thing is, if you're waiting for that particular date, you could be wasting the time that you have now. Mm. Instead of thinking of change, especially when we're talking about lifestyle change, instead of thinking about that change as having to happen at a certain time of year, Instead, I want you to think of it as an ongoing way of being. This is not something that you can tick off like getting married or having a baby, right? It's not a destination thing that once you cross that line, you're there. It's an ongoing way of shaping the way you are on a daily basis, which means that you can start that now. Um, And I really encourage you to start now because I promise you that even if you did wait for a particular anniversary day, like the 1st of January, you're probably still going to get to it and still feel like you're not ready. So you create all this sense of anxiety of, oh my God, we're starting tomorrow. So I've got to like eat an entire packet of biscuits today because tomorrow we're starting like the diet. I don't, I don't buy into diet culture at all. I don't think it's helpful. Instead, if you think of a way of being able to uh, relate to yourself from a place of compassion and then um, look at your habits as to are you treating yourself in a way that supports who you want to be, you're going to get much further than if you try to make it a start line and a finish line. Mm. And even if, I suppose, even if you did have like January 1st, January 2nd, I'm going to do this between now and then you could still be starting to implement those small changes that can build up to the consistency. I do think small changes are always the way to go, even if you waited for January the 1st. Like big changes work for very few people. Some There's a small subset of the population that do well with like cold turkey approaches and also waiting for a particular date. Um, Some people who have a more extreme way of being, um, that can work for them. It's not all or nothing. You know, it's not like it works for no people. But there's a far larger number of the population that for whom waiting for a date puts too much pressure on their brains um, and it doesn't allow them to be able to move forward. But, you know, you can start on a random Thursday. You could start today. You could start at a random hour. So you could start this afternoon if you wanted to, you know, like you don't need to even wait until the morning. Um, But we decide in our brains that there needs to be a start because apparently there's going to be a distinct difference between how we were and how we're going to be. But unfortunately, that level of pressure usually doesn't work. So go gently and make the changes in a really small way because they're more likely to stick that way. So if someone was to start now, go for it. It's cold here in Canada. Like when I say cold, it's like freezing. It's like minus 20. So you could start now. You could go for a 40-minute walk outside, but I'm already hearing voices in people's heads saying, oh, but it's so cold and it's this and that, I'll do it tomorrow or whatever. What is that voice? Is that that fear voice, afraid of getting uncomfortable again? Yeah, so I think we need to kind of look at the voice when it's being realistic. Like obviously you don't want to go outside and get hypothermia. I'm assuming if you're in Canada, then you'd actually have the clothing for it. Yeah, we're used to it. Yeah, Yeah, you're used to it. But you still need to think about, 
if it's going to be so uncomfortable, then you are unlikely to do it. What can you do given the conditions that are going to be more workable? So sometimes the voice has something legitimate to say, like, don't particularly want to walk outside in minus 20. Okay. Fair enough. Good. I get it. But is there something that you could do inside? You know, could you go and do um, like some kind of stretches in the afternoon? Could you do some, could you just have an extra couple of glasses of water, make the water warm, you know, like what are the small things that you can do? Your, the voice in your head is usually the voice that's led by fear. So the one that will say it's too hard, but don't make it so hard that it becomes completely unworkable because sometimes the voice has a point, right? Yeah. So then you're trying to find a compromise, which I see yeah. clients. That point of compromise, maybe you'll dance instead at home, but if you can't yeah. go out for the walk, or if you do decide to have the slice of pizza at lunch, then you're compromising with yourself. Okay, if I have this pizza, then this evening I am going to go for my walk or whatever. Yeah, you just make it workable. Don't set yourself up for something that feels so hard. You just know you won't do it. Uh And then the more you accomplish these workable tasks, that's those small wins that accumulate over time along with consistency and you're feeling better and better. And that snowball effect is you're on a roll then, as they say. Yes. Do you have any... You kind of already answered this, but I'm going to ask it. Do you have any tips for your clients or your followers going into the new year? Do you, like I know you said, like don't put too much pressure on yourself. You don't have to wait till January 1st. Is there any other tips that you can give to help with, don't want to say compliance, but showing up for yourself? Um, One of the things... The tip, it doesn't actually belong to me in terms of the words, but the words really, I just find them really helpful, Mm. Um, but also not too much of a slap in the face. And those words are by Karen Lamb. And she said um, something along the lines of, um, in 12 months time, you'll wish that you started today. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that one before. Yeah. It is. um it's almost heartbreaking to me to see clients that that I know they don't want to be who they are acting like now, but I don't know how to help them any further because I obviously can't go into the home. I can't, there's lines I can't cross. There's certain things I can't say, but it it does. I think a lot of my clients know it does upset me when I see, I will have someone go, for example, they'll lose 40 pounds. And that will be amazing. And then something will happen and that's they stop showing up because of these personal life aspects and they gain it all back. But regardless of the way they hate themselves almost and self-hate yeah. is We have to horrible. start with the relationship with ourselves first. Change takes time and it, we cycle around the stages of change so many times before change is sustained. And I think it's worth being gentle. I'm so sorry, but I have to go now. Um, Shemaine, I've got an, a meeting in three minutes, so um, okay. I have to All jump right. to my next It was meeting. great talking to you and I'll be in touch soon. Thank you for the chat. Maybe we'll do it again, a follow-up. My pleasure. Thanks for having Bye. me on. Bye. See ya.